Leadership, I think about how do you, how are you able to leverage whatever talents you have, be that education, smart, you know, being smart, be it um, being charismatic. How are you going to leverage that towards bringing a bunch of people together around a shared goal? Dr. Derek Gay retraces his career journey on this episode of the Leadership Backstory. We learn about his journey from music to teaching and administrating to founding a consultancy that's partnered with over 500 organizations across numerous sectors to deepen D&I capacity, enhance inclusion and engagement, attract, hire, and retain the best talent, and design strategy to maximize business and education goals. There are lots of leadership lessons packed into this episode. I'm Peter Barron. Brendan Schneider and I learned a lot, and we know you will too, so let's get started. Hey everyone, I'm Peter Barron. And I'm Brendan Schneider. Yeah, and welcome to the Leadership Backstory. Uh, Brendan, today we have, a, let me just put it this way, there, it isn't often that we get to speak to somebody who's a professional opera singer, and today is one of those days. I'm really excited about it. It's <laughs> somebody that I've worked with over the last three or four years, have gotten to know, really appreciate the way uh, he's built his business and works with his customers, and there's just a lot to learn here. And, our, and today's guest is Dr. Derek Gay. Derek, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. I feel like I should start by singing something, but maybe that's later in the conversation. Oh, we, we <laughs> Brendan and I were Brendan and I were like, okay, we got we got to figure out how to get him to sing us something <laughs> during this podcast. Um, hey, Derek, for those of you who don't, for those of us, for those folks who haven't had a chance to work with you or have you know learned about your services, just quickly, like set up the work that you do now, and then we'll 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 go from there. Yeah. Um, so I am currently a diversity and inclusion strategist, um, working with organizations both here in the United States and abroad um, on issues of diversity and inclusion. So really thinking about how we can uh, cultivate organizations that are representative of the broad talent that we have out in the world. I always like to say that um, excellence is 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 represented everywhere and opportunity isn't always. So it's equally distributed, but opportunity isn't. And then within those organizations, thinking about how we have inclusive environments where folks have the resources that they need to thrive and to to flourish. And those organizations range from from schools, um, both here in the United States and international schools. Um, I work with Sesame Street, um, lots of nonprofits. I work yeah. with uh, the Frick Museum in, in, in New York City and uh, working with Barilla, working with folks in financial services, working with Phantom of the Opera as wow. their um, consultant. So really yeah. uh, working with law firms over across many industries and, and many countries. So I really appreciate um, the work that I'm doing. I pinch myself that um, my my passion is my vocation. Yeah, isn't that interesting how you, you make your passion your vocation? And I, I have had the good privilege of being one of your clients and uh, just just mesmerized by the way you're able to help organizations, you know, think about building something that is much more of a you know inclusive belonging community. You're, br- you're brilliant at it and I just couldn't wait to bring you on here today. So yeah, we'll obviously talk about that, but I really, I am super interested to understand how did you get to this place? And, you know, I often joke at the beginning of each pod is like our greatest research tool is LinkedIn. So people are probably probably getting pretty sick of me talking about LinkedIn, but (laughs) it's the thing that we return to frequently. And I don't know, like I I love to go all the way back to your days in in college because I I see you you went to Oberlin and then you've got some work that you've done at at, at Penn and Teachers College. Like, 
Talk about the role of education in terms of building early leadership lessons for you. Like, what were some of the things that you're able to pluck out of those early days? Wow, so a great question. So I think about. Um, I was just having a conversation yesterday with someone, um, really priming the prompt for this conversation. I'm giving a commencement address uh, this year. My first commencement wow. address, actually, wow. um, Very cool. to at the Merritt Music School. And the Merritt Music School is a tuition-free school here in Chicago, where I live and where um, I was born, that I attended. Um, I started there in seventh grade, and I went seventh through twelfth grade. And it's there that I learned to play the violin. It's there that I learned to play the viola. It's there that I learned to play piano. It's there that I start to sing uh, professionally. It's there that um, that I really fell in love with with music. Um, and what I love about the school is that the idea isn't necessarily to create the next Itzhak Perlman um, or to you know quote some people who actually graduated from the school, the next um, Anthony McGill or the next Damari McGill who are big names in classical music. Um, the goal of the school really was to, I think, create better people yeah. um, and to create a better world. And when I think about the role of music in particular, because you asked about college, by the time I got to Oberlin, um, I was in love with music, in love with languages, in love with people and humanity. And going there was like being a, a kid in a, in a candy shop um, because it was there that I lived for the first time in my first international community. So there were people from all over the world um, at Oberlin. Certainly, anyone who knows about Oberlin, they think about its yeah. commitment to to social justice, its commitment to, it was the first college to admit women. It was the first college to admit um, black people. It was the first college to have co-ed dorms. Um, it's been in the forefront of every um, sort of social justice uh, movement in the United States. So I was really excited about that. Um, but it was there that um, becoming a musician um, and singing vowels and learning different languages and interacting with different folks. And also my other major was in romance languages um, that I learned the skills that I would need to be successful today. So right now I'm not singing at the Metropolitan Opera. I'm not singing at La Scala. Um, and I'm a musician. Uh, music is critical to who I am and how I see myself. And some of the skills that I learned from music um, in retrospect, really set the 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 roadmap um, for for where I am um, today. I think about skills around discipline. I mean, you're there in that practice room your right. whole life. Um, <laughs> I think about skills around receiving critical feedback. Um, you know, every I had you know you have two lessons a week uh, with your teacher, where it is literally. You need to modify this vowel. You need to stand like this. You need to breathe from here. You're not projecting enough here. I need more articulation on this consonant. Um, you're interacting and collaborating with people. A singer's never singing along, alone. You're with the pianist. You're with an orchestra. You're with the cast. So this this building up EQ, you have to, to be a successful musician. Um, you're always in interaction with other people. This idea of thinking about um, humanity, you're giving, there's nothing more vulnerable than singing or playing a piano or playing a violin. You're literally putting yourself out there and hoping that people will accept you um, in the spirit in which you're, you're offering your most, uh, your most coveted, your most vulnerable thing you have, which is yourself and your spirit. 
And I think of the improvisation that comes with being a singer, um, uh, with, you know, your practice as much as you can, and you have to do what's the best that you can in that moment. And, um, just being extemporaneous, those are all skills that have set me up for, for, for the work that I'm doing today. But so when you graduated from Oberlin, you decided yeah. not to, I mean, maybe you were running things in parallel and I just, you know, there's a story there that we can, we, we can dig into, but you made a, this decision to teach. And I'm curious, like what moved you in that direction versus, you know, I don't know, did you contemplate just going all in on music or is that just not a thing that people can do? I, I don't, I don't know how all that works. Yeah. People do go all in on music and indeed at the Oldman Conservatory, I mean, this is, this is a, you know, uh, a world-class conservatory where most of my classmates are now playing in professional symphonies, playing in professional opera houses, singing professional opera houses. They're making their living, um, singing or playing the violin. You know, most of my classmates, that's what they do. I go and support them when I go to Lyric Opera, when I go to, to New York City Opera, when I go to the Metropolitan Opera. Um, but I was always following two parallel paths. One was around academia and one was around um, being a professional musician. And, you know, I did both in, at Oberlin. So I studied Oberlin Conservatory at Oberlin College. And my teacher, um, brilliant man, his name was Professor Richard Miller. And there were a number of us who were what they called double degree. And he said something to me, which um, really resonated with me. And I'm so glad he said it to me. He said, if you do not wake up every morning and the first thing you think about is singing and you could think of nothing else to do all day, then you should not become a professional singer. (laughs) And I said to him, I think about a lot of other things beyond singing. And there we were, (laughs) right? And so, you know, it was, I continued to sing, but my passion of mine really was also, was was teaching. Um, and it was being with people. So that's why I went into education. So this idea, when I wake up every morning, what is it I think about? I think about being in community with folks and thinking about how I can push myself to find the best things in them to sort of leverage those to 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 help them be the best people they can. And that's what a classroom was for me. So I taught middle school and uh, upper school, French, Spanish, and music, and loved every moment in the classroom. I was always a nerd. And here being a nerd was celebrated. Um, Here, (laughs) you know, reading lots of books was celebrated. And the idea that I had this generation in front of me and that I could give them this skill of either music or language uh, mm. And in that, teach them about different cultures and to acknowledge and affirm who they were. That was the best thing ever. You know, I, 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 I couldn't wait to design the lessons and then teach them the next day. Um, I couldn't wait to find the next song to share with them so we could learn about the imperfect subjunctive. I couldn't you know, wait to use the latest trick I had learned from opera class to teach them how to, how to roll an R. And some of my greatest teaching memories still I have today is now going on the Facebook and you know you're old when you put an article in front of Facebook <laughs> and you know you're old if you have a Facebook account. But going on and seeing my former students and seeing that they're using their linguistic skills, they're traveling all yeah. around the world. Many of them have become teachers or administrators or they're off in the business world 
um, okay. and they're using their their linguistic skills and just their open mindedness. I want to come back to that, but before we do, you had, when when your professor asks you that question, like, do you, yes. is the first thing that you think about is it music in the morning? Yeah. Did you did you think you were going to be a musician before he asked that question? Or, you know, like, how did that? What did that feel like when you when you when you gained that clarity? It's a great question because some people they ask, "Were you offended that he said that? Yeah. Um, did you feel as if he was crushing your dream uh, when he said that?" And you know, because I was double degree and had my hands in many pots, I knew that. I could be successful at whatever I put my mind to. And I knew that because by the time I had gotten to Oberlin, I had gone through a lot of hoops to get to that fancy school. You know, starting off in my neighborhood school that was under-resourced um, and, and, and going to another neighborhood re uh, 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 public school that was um, somewhat more resourced but still very under-resourced. So you then have a teacher who in that school said, Derek, I see something in you, and I know you're working as hard as you can, but uh, you need to be surrounded by, uh, you need to be challenged more. So I'm gonna recommend you go to this next school. And so I got to Newberry Math and Science Academy, which is a whole different world for me. You know, work, working, um, studying with and becoming friends with solid middle-class um, kids who grew up with, you know, the mom and the dad who were doctors and lawyers and they went to the museums and all these things, which was not my background at all. And then feeling as if I had sort of um, I had to catch up by the time I was in fifth grade and then going from that program to yet another hoop, which is another magnet school in Chicago called Whitney Young, where one of our famous alums is Michelle Obama, going there to being the top of my Newberry Math and Science Academy, which is a wonderful place, to now going to this 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 you know prestigious seven through twelve school called Whitney Young, where I was with the top of the top from the city, and thinking now I'm at the bottom of the barrel again, and scratching my way there and working and learning to play these instruments and spending my Saturdays at Merritt learning all of these things. So by the time I got to Oberlin, I had metacognition. I knew how to learn. I knew how to look at myself diagnostically and see. What am I good at? What am I not good at? What do I have the time to learn? What are my interests? And if I really put my mind to it, I know I can do it. So when he asked me, if you wake up every morning and if singing is not what you do, um, should you become a singer? I didn't see it as, a, as an insult. I saw it as this man knows me, has worked with me for five years now, and he's looking out for my best interests. So I figured if I wanted to be a singer, Yes, I think I could have become a singer. Would I have been singing at the Metropolitan Opera? Probably not. Because what I've learned now is to become an effective singer, you just have to learn technique, be a good person, get your language, get your diction, and put practice to it. So it would have been a very different path. And had I taken that path, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you now. I wouldn't be working around the world with all of these organizations doing the work that I'm doing. Yeah. How did... Once you got into the classroom and you were able to fuel this passion, like what what kind of leadership lessons emerged there? Because you know, I'm looking and you you moved from you know being a classroom teacher to an administrator. Like, what were the things that you gained along that part of your journey? Yeah. So by the time I got to the classroom, I think 
One of the leadership qualities that I learned from teaching was one, just the importance. I learned this from, from singing as well and from playing violin and viola and conducting as well. The importance of preparation. Um, and I learned that success, and someone told me this when I was in high school, and it really resonated with me. Success is opportunity plus preparation. If you're not prepared, you can't take advantage of the opportunity. So, um, you have a friend now who just made his, his debut at the Metropolitan Opera, amazing singer, Lemmy Pulliam is his name. And he reminded of me of the lesson. He said, you have to stay ready. <laughs> you have to stay prepared in order to take advantage of these opportunities. So in the classroom, I learned about preparation. In the classroom, I learned about improvisation. In the classroom, I learned about the importance, not only of the content of the message, but the way in which it's delivered. I mean, you have, I had five audiences a day, classes. Right. And yeah. I had to somehow determine how am I going to make this grammar? <laughs> how am yeah. I going to make agreement of adjectives with, uh, uh, with past principles? How am I going to make that meaningful? And so that was a leadership lesson because leadership, I think about how do you, how are you able to leverage whatever talents you have, be that education, smart, you know, being smart, be it, um, being charismatic. How are you going to leverage that towards bringing a bunch of people together around a shared goal? And if my goal is I want you to learn a subjunctive, and I know that this class loves baseball, then I'm going to write a paragraph using subjunctive and baseball. That's how I'm going to reach this audience. And that's something in the work that I do, you know, now they have fancy terms, EQ, reading the room, all of these things. <laughs> but it's getting a sense of who's in front of me what is the value proposition to that group and how can I meet them where they are to go where we need to go together? One of the best leadership moments I learned. Another leadership, um, uh, great piece of advice that someone gave me uh, when I was a teacher and about to transition to become an administrator. As an administrator, I was director of community life and diversity. And the piece of advice that this person gave me was, um, that you don't always have to have the answer and you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah. That was super, super yeah. important for me yeah. because until then, I actually thought I had to be the smartest person in the room. Right. You know, you can imagine suffering someone from imposter syndrome, you know, coming from under-resourced schools and getting to all the places that I've been um, and thinking I was always sort of catching up and wondering when somehow someone's going to find out that I'm actually not as smart as they, as they, as, as they think I am, right? And then recognizing that to be an effective leader, yeah. you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. And in fact, you want to surround yourself with people who are probably smarter than you um, yeah. so that you can learn and grow and sort of figure out what is it that you do well and what is it that you do less well and surround yourself by people who do things better than you. Um, so that was, a, that was an important lesson as well. And the idea that um, you don't have to, I mentioned, you don't have to solve everyone's problems. Sometimes people just want you to create space for them to be affirmed and validated that they have the right to be who they are or the right to have the perspective that they have. Yeah. Did, did Derek, before we get to the administrator role, and clearly what I think you're saying here is that you can be a leader without having a title. Um, 
but it seems like through your history that you were increasingly getting leadership roles. Did you seek those roles out or were they drawn to you? A little bit of both? It's interesting. Um, I think, you know, perception, one's perception of how one is perceived are quite different. Um, you know, my version of the story is that um, that I didn't seek them out. Uh, my friend's version of this is that I always sought them out um, <laughs> because I was always thinking about how can I how can I affect greater change mm. at scale? And so if it's not in the Spanish classroom or it's not teaching French, then it is directing the musical, right? So I directed the school, well, in, in, in high school, I directed musicals, right? Um, at that point, even I said, if it's if singing in the choir is one thing, but if I really want to impact that scale, I just conduct, I conduct the musical, right? right. So I can, I can, have some type of, of of input on the musicians, on the libretto, on the staging. As a teacher, I thought, well, I have some type of impact in the classroom. I'd have greater impact um, leading the diversity group. I would have even greater impact um, starting a gospel choir. I have greater impact creating a group, an affinity group for parents and daughters of students of color to help everyone. Um, I have even greater impact if I go to Columbia and get a master's in, in, in education and the clingency program. So um, I think I was always seeking out ways that I could, I could do more. And when I, in my youth, I saw them also as opportunities to further develop um, my skill set. So I'm, I've got a lot of questions here, but before I get to, to some of the, what did you learn? So when you made the transition to an administrator, like how did the, how did, how, how did things change? I mean, what kind of lens did you look through from that, that, that role? Yeah, I think one of the greatest challenges, um, around being an administrator is having that, that 25,000 foot lens. Yeah. Um, and not only thinking about the purview of your classroom, but also thinking about how your actions are going to impact layers of the organization. And how one of the challenges is that there's this sense of competing interests. Um, if you're thinking about a school, that if you're thinking about students and the interaction with parents and then the faculty and the staff and the board and these other things, that it's often sort of thinking about how can I best support each of these groups in ways that sometimes feel feels mutually um, incompatible. The other piece that was difficult um, uh, somewhat challenging for me, if I'll be truly honest and vulnerable, is that um, I had to grow thicker skin. Um, and certainly, that's something I, I um, am grateful for now as a as a consultant in diversity and inclusion. Certainly, you need thick skin. Uh, as an administrator, everyone isn't going to like you, right. um, and <laughs> even when you're doing the right thing, even when you're doing something that's going to provide the, the, the maximum benefit for the most amount of people, there are going to be people who aren't going to like you. There are going to be people who are going to be don't like you because they're just oppositional to the role. There are people who aren't going to like you because they don't like people in leadership. There's going to be people who just don't like you, period. And certainly, I experienced lots of that um, when I became the messenger around diversity and inclusion um, in, in the school that I was working at. So that, that was difficult because here you are, many people in my role, um, and often I would argue many leaders also go into leadership because they do want to uh, 
affect change. And in my role, you like people. I mean, I like people a lot. Um, that's why I became a teacher. That's why, you know, that's why I'm a musician. I enjoy being with people. Right. So to engage in a space where you're doing your best to try to advance humanity and do the best for folks. And the fact that some people just don't like you, that, that was hard. That was really difficult for me as a, as a leader and still times sometimes difficult. Yeah. I have to, to sort of compartmentalize that. How, I mean, so how, how did you react to, to that in the moment when you realized it? Um, I, um, how did I react to it? I mean, it was somewhat expected. Yeah. Um, it was expected again because of my journey, um, coming from, you know, the little poor kid, um, in, in the under-resourced school, I had been in many types of situations where people had either challenged me, my intellect, challenged my ability, underestimated who I was, or for just a number of reasons, just didn't, didn't like me. And so I had to build resilience around that and learn how to, still difficult, um, yeah. to, to compartmentalize that. So when I saw it, I recognized it. I recognized it as this is not necessarily, Derek, about you. Right. Did you have mentors along the way? Oh, God, did I have mentors? Yes. <laughs> I've had mentors. You know, that's why I'm here where I am today. I've had mentors from the beginning. I had mentors in my family. I had mentors at church. I had mentors uh, in in school. I think about um, uh, Miss Poniatowski in third grade who said, you know, you need to go to this other school where I'm teaching to go to, um, to, to, to Newberry. You know, I think about uh, Mademoiselle Payne uh, in seventh grade who was my French teacher who challenged me to, she saw that, you know, I was a little precocious kid, but also I was a little mischievous. I sort of like to throw paper airplanes <laughs> and all these things. So she knew she had to get to me. And she, she said, you know, if you're so smart, why don't you, these were literally her words. If you're so smart, why don't you join the, this, this national French competition called the Grand Concours? And you'll have to study a lot because you're just learning French. It's going to be really hard. I'm not sure if you can do it. I'm not sure if you can do it, but if you come to lunch every day, I'll help you. And I was like, oh, a challenge, really? She became a mentor. She became a mentor. She introduced me to theater. She would take me to the Shakespeare Theater Company. She introduced me to Greek food. She introduced me to French culture and language. She was a really um, great mentor and gave me a lot of hard love. I think about um, Duffy Adelson, who was the um, president of Merit Music Program, who was also my um, orchestra uh, conductor uh, when I was growing up and who now is a good friend and we sit on board together and talk about full circle mm. um, and uh, how much she supported me. You know, I think about my teacher in college, uh, Professor Miller, who supported me. So many people, um, Dorothy Hutchison, who is a head of school at um, Nightingale Banford, who gave me some tough love lessons. She was the one that told me, you don't have to always have an answer for everything, Derek. <laughs> uh, you know, I think about Professor Brasidas at, at Teachers College. I think about so many people. I mean, the list goes on and on. I feel so fortunate that so many people throughout the course of my life have pulled me over to the side. So it's gone out of their way to say, I see something in you and I want to, I want to support you. Yeah. It's it, we, we've talked to uh, some guests in the past, and this concept of like a personal board of directors—you know, people that you can lean on in tough times, keep you in check, encourage you, doing all <laughs> the things. Like, I, I, I'm, I, I'm guessing you have that group of people in oh, your yeah. in, in your corner. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And, you know, with the advent of technology and the, uh, you know, the WhatsApp and all of these things, uh, I have a group of friends on, you know, different uh, WhatsApp and iChat and these things that we, we talk all the time, all the time, all day long, we're talking. Right. And they really keep me in check. You know, some of these people are 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 famous musicians. They're famous scholars. They're famous actors. Um, and with them, and with them, I'm Derek. They're not impressed by anything I do. <laughs> they're still calling me names, right? They're still like, you know, you think you're this, but you're nothing, right? You know, I saw that, I listened to your TED talk. It was okay. It was okay. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, you know, we, so we, we jab each other and yeah, give yeah, each other yeah. critical feedback, yeah. but the key, and these are people that I can be a hundred percent vulnerable with and say, you know what? I think I, I think I blew this one up. Like, I think, I think I messed this up. And they're like, well, tell me about it. Well, yeah, it sounds like you did mess that up. Right. <laughs> and like, what did you learn from that? The people that, you know, I can go, I have a really good friend also who's a, you know, she's in this space of diversity and inclusion. She works with lots of schools and I can go to her and she just gets it. She knows what it's like to live on a plane and to give it your all and it works most of the time but sometimes you may regret something that you said and how do you clean it up and how do you decompartmentalize some of these things so i have i have that i have yeah. that board of directors now the other question that i think is important that i'm looking at now you know as i think about my my eyesight that is um, every day deteriorating other things <laughs> that now i'm thinking about not only my board of directors but at this stage of my career also i'm thinking about who's my legacy yeah how do I, you know, how do I pay it forward? That's something that's very much on my mind. I'm thinking about my journey and I've had mentors. I want to give back. And so I actively seek out opportunities to give yeah. back and not only at the organizational level. So, you know, being philanthropic and all these things, but individuals. So who is going to continue with right. this work? Right. Um, you know, I only have maybe another 30 years doing this. Yeah. So yeah, who's, Who's, who, who's going to yeah. inherit this? Who, man, who can I support in the way that so many have supported me? You know, Derek, that resonates, you know, really deeply. Brendan, I'm guessing it does for you too. I mean, this yeah. that's why we started this podcast was like, we, we've had really good mentors along the way. People have supported us. We want to be able to share stories like of folks like you, of Jason Brooks, of, you know, Christine Evans, I mean, all these people who have had incredible careers, but it took years to get to where they are and they had to suffer through some tough times. And I don't know, I think those stories are really informative. Um, at what point, Derek, did you say, you know what, I think I want to become a diversity consultant? Because, I, you know, you've been, you've been doing this for <laughs> God, at 20, 13 years now. I mean, it's been, you've been at it for a long time. I've been at it. So if you look at um, the work I was doing in schools, so that was night. I started teaching in 1998 and always doing diversity in schools, um, either as a teacher or sitting on diversity committee or being director of community life and diversity. Uh -huh. And then starting my own practice in 2009. Wow. And of course, people thought I was crazy because 2009, remember, there's this little uh, incident with the economy. Um, and they're saying, <laughs> why would you, why would you abandon, you know, a nice New York city independent school salary to go out in your, on your own in the middle of the economic crisis 
to do what? 2009, there weren't a lot of people doing diversity yeah. work as a no. consultant. Yeah. Right. Right. And so when I yeah. shared this with people, even in my, so my master's program at Columbia, everyone who was in that program is now a head of school somewhere, some big fancy school. And when we came back um, from our first year and everyone's saying, I'm the head of school of this place. I'm the head of school of this place. You know, I'm the director of whatever at this place. And I came back and I said, I'm going to open my own business and become a consultant. <laughs> the head of the program looks at me. Some of my friends are like, uh, you know, you want to think about this? Um, but I knew going back to what I said earlier, going back from the little kid, going, you know, going back to the under-resourced school, I yeah. knew where I had come from. So I knew if I put my mind to it, that I would be able to do this. And my closest friends who know me and who know my story, they had no doubt. You know, there are a couple that come to mind now who remind me, they said, you know, one, I knew this was going to be your path. I knew you were going to be, you know, this international consultant. We always knew it. But the one in particular said, and I laughed. And people will come to me and they say, is Derek going to be okay? Um, you know, is he going to be able to to pay his rent um, is, is, is he going to be able to eat? I mean, I know he's, he left this great position and now he's starting on his own for, for diversity work. And again, those who knew me knew that, um, I knew what I was doing. So, yeah. you know, the, 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 the decision for me was clear when I was, again, I mean, I'm not, I'm connecting dots now. My music teacher told me, if you do not wake up every morning and want to sing, you should not become a teacher, or rather a singer. When I was in this, this you know, arguably one of the most elite independent school graduate programs there is called the Klingenstein Program of Columbia University, and I'm looking around at my, my friends and colleagues and seeing the passion they have around being ahead of school, I didn't have it. Yeah. I knew then that that was not the path for me. That was not the path for me. And so, again, I had to think about what is the passion that yeah. I have? The passion is around people. The passion is around diversity, inclusion, belonging, whatever you want to call it, cultural confidence, social, emotional learning, character development, integrity, whatever you want to call it. My, I want to bring people together around commonalities while, while recognizing the differences and recognizing that the, 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 the landscape is not even. What are we going to do about it? I want to be that person. And it became crystal clear to me at that moment that I could not do that as a head of school, me personally. And I could not do that um, with the constraints of being a leadership role in one school. I thought there was much more that I could do. So you were thinking about scaling yeah. even back then? Even back then. The yeah. reason I you know, transitioned from being an administrator in a school to being a consultant is I want to impact at scale. Mm -hmm. So looking back at your story up to this point, you've spent a lot of time in education, a lot of time in music. Did you, where did you, where did you pick up the entrepreneurial skills? Where did that come? So it's really interesting. <clears throat> I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. <laughs> and then I was speaking to my friends like, are you kidding me? Your entire life, you've been an entrepreneur. And it's true, right? So I think about, you know, in in high school, um, it was always thinking about 
ways because I don't come from means. And there is a program at Northwestern called the Cherubs Program. And I need to get these skills to be the best musician I can be. How do I make this happen? I need to write an essay. I need to talk to someone about a scholarship. I need to see if I can get a summer job. I need to create an opportunity. Mm. In Damn. college, you know, I had work study. I was, and I have jokes with some of my friends that we talk about how many, who had the most work study jobs, right? So I was TAing in French and TAing in Spanish and TAing in Italian and TAing in piano and TAing in all of these things, finding ways to make it work. When I was a teacher um, in New York City and, you know, going from um, Wilmington, Delaware to Groton, Massachusetts to New York City and coming to New York City and earning, you know, less than $60,000 and living in New York City and thinking about this is not going to work. <laughs> I need to do something. I began tutoring, right? And so all throughout my time in New York City, I was uh, teaching or being an administrator, tutoring and trying to sing opera, right? And going off to the summer programs and doing all of that. Um, and uh, so by the time I became a consultant, while in education, there's like the sort of, a, you know, people are averse to business and business terms. Yeah. And I was as well, but I realized that in fact, in creating this consultancy, I was creating a business is what I was yeah. doing. Uh -huh. um, and luckily I was able to draw upon all of those skills that I had needed to sort of earn sort of revenue to be able to do the things I need to do, not having come from means, I was able to then think outside the box and do, do as my grandfather used to say, do what I needed to do to do what I needed to do. Hey, um, and so I facts. knew, I knew that I had a safety net. That safety net was in New York City, I could tutor. I could tutor and easily make my salary as an administrator, easily. The worst thing that I could do was to fail and then start again. And I was fine doing that. And so that was how I began this work. First in schools, I was in New York City, so in the tri-state area. And then I just made cold calls to major metropolitan areas, um, to Atlanta, to Los Angeles, to San Francisco, um, to, to Austin, to my hometown, Chicago, and spoke with people and said, you know, I had a network from having been in the space and said, look, I've been doing this work for X amount of years, and now I'd like to do what I've done in organizations. I'd like to do that at scale. So I'd like to have a conversation with you about how I can, how I can, I can support you. And that, um, that, you know, finding a, a big fish in the major markets and knowing that if I got that client and I did well, that it's a small world, they're going to speak, this is before we had social media, that they're going to speak to other people and the network would grow. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next piece, so at this point, you know, I'm already thinking like an entrepreneur, but I wasn't calling it that. I said, this is great. I want to work, um, I want to work around the country and I want to impact not only schools, I want to impact more broadly. And so I had a, a wonderful um, opportunity to to create this this TEDx talk around the double-edged sword. And that was probably the next milestone in my career um, because folks outside of uh, outside of schools and outside of New York and some of these other major metropolitan areas heard that. And I began to get phone calls um, from nonprofits and from businesses 
asking if I could support them in their diversity inclusion efforts. And, you know, you have to fake it until you make it. So the first couple of clients <laughs> I worked with, I had never worked at a nonprofit before. And in fact, I vividly recall sort of falling on my face almost um, and working with a nonprofit, an education nonprofit and working with their C-suite. And I came in thinking I was working in an education space, but an education nonprofit space is not an education space. It's a nonprofit business space. And my my framing was all off, completely off. And sort of five minutes into it, going back to that singing um, sense, I, I sensed that this message was not resonating the way that it needed to and regrouped. Uh, and from there, working with tons of nonprofits, began to work increasingly with uh, with businesses and then working internationally as well. Uh, what were some of the what were some of the early challenges? I mean, I love that you cold called all these places, right? Like, how did sales feel to you <laughs> at that at that early phase of the business? You know, it's interesting. Um, again, because of the the theatrical piece of my background, you know, the 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 opera piece, the being on stage piece, and that's authentic, certainly. Um, but there is a there is a how do I reach people? Uh, reach people piece of that. Um, it didn't feel uncomfortable to me um, speaking to people because, again, there's the preparation piece. I knew that I was prepared to do what I'm going to do. Yeah. And so I wasn't selling them uh, 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 a lemon. I was, I was telling the truth and knowing that once I got in, that I'd be able to hit the home run. Um, and so that part didn't feel uncomfortable to me. The challenge that I like about, uh, particularly about being a consultant is, you know, I mentioned the metaphor of the home run is that you're only as good as your last gig. And so you have to be consistent at yeah. hitting home runs. And yeah. again, it goes back to my music background. Um, my teacher always said, you want to sing so well that your worst singing is better than someone else's best. And so just coming in there, knowing that you know what you're doing, you have your content, you're open to being adaptable and humble and um, and coming in there and making a difference. So I knew once I got in, I knew what I was doing. When you talked about consistency, I mean, you talked about purpose early on, right? And so that purpose must have made it easy, much easier to be consistent, right? That constant drive. The, the, the yeah, knowing, knowing, this work, and I mentioned earlier, so when, you're, when your passion is your vocation, it makes it really easy. Right. Um, you know, my pleasure reading is reading about cultural anthropology, is reading about sociology, is reading about best practices around diversity and inclusion, is watching documentaries. So this, I embody my work. Um, and in as much as I embody my work, I'm constantly pushing myself to be the best that I can be. And in being the best that I can be at my work, it is mutually beneficial to being the best person that I can be as well. So it's, it's been a win-win, um, situation from the beginning. It, it seems Derek, I'm going to try to get this question right. So in the work that you do, especially now, you're now a, a leader of leaders or is it a teacher of leaders or a combination of that? Or did I miss it all together? Is there something else? And a student of leaders, right? Sure. Um, because yeah. I'm constantly learning and growing. Yeah. I often say when I work with groups that I probably learned more from this than you did. 
uh, because <laughs> yeah. every group yeah. is yeah. different right. and every group is pushing me in a different way. It's yeah. pushing me to 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 curate content in a different way, to make it meaningful in a different way. You know, the presentation that I that I create in New York City is not going to resonate in Seoul. It's not going to resonate yeah. in Hong Kong. The, yeah. the, the, the student talk that I give in Chicago is not going to resonate with the C-suite for the financial services that I'm working with. The framing that I do for um, Pooch, right, a fashion brand, is not going to work at Sesame Street. <laughs> so I'm constantly pushing myself and learning from folks. It's all diagnostic for me. I'm taking in all of the data. I'm probably my worst critic. You know, I read these surveys and people think they're being critical of me. I'm more critical of myself than anyone has ever been. Um, and, um, you know, helping, supporting folks at all these levels, right? So at the, at the, in an, in an organization, right? And at, at the individual contributor level, level at the managerial sort of space and at the C-suite space. In a school, at the student level, at the teacher level, at the parent level, at the administrative level, at the board level, at the membership level. So thinking of, you know, some of these membership organizations and, and you know, I'm supporting them and also I'm learning and growing from them uh, as well through engaging through these just the diverse problems of practice that I'm solving for keeps me relevant um, as well. And being humble and reaching out to folks when I don't know something and reaching out to this board of directors, as you mentioned, uh, and, and learning and growing from them as well. And, and also part of this, I think, is letting people know when we've reached the, uh, when we're in, uh, when we're in a, a zone that is not my expertise mm. and saying, I'm going to recommend you to this person. <laughs> this is their jam. I'm going to recommend you to that person and not seeing myself in competition with others. You know, what role does creativity play in, in keeping you, you know, just excited and engaged? I mean, because I know you've got this, you know, extensive musical background. Are you still able, still able to tap into that as your part, part of your daily? Oh, yeah. I sing every day in the shower. Um, I warm up every day in the shower and I mean, warm up like operatic warm up in the shower. Um, and I still sing, uh, periodically. Um, I still give master, I give opera master classes. Um, I'm, I'll be back at my alma mater, um, at, uh, Merit Music in a few, uh, weeks to work with the students there. And I still perform, uh, at concerts. I probably sing four or five times a year. So <laughs> that, that means I have to stay in shape. Um, I can't open up my mouth and they say, oh, he's a consultant. That's why, he, I mean, he's good at that, but he probably should be singing. <laughs> yeah. So that keeps me relevant. I still practice piano. I still want to pick up my violin. I haven't done it in a while, but that that's that's on my list. I'm constantly, you know, if I don't engage in some type of creative process around music, because that's really sort of my creative um, outlet, um, I'm, I don't, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not me. I'm not whole. And then the work that I do, and people are surprised sometimes when they say this, the work that I do is extremely creative. Um, it's not that I create a PowerPoint and then there's a template. And I just sort of you know, use it over and over. And I'm constantly updating yeah. my work and using, you know, something happens yesterday, it's going to be in my, it's going to be in my, my presentation today. Um, yeah. And so that that is a creative process. The design of the work that I do is a creative process. 
Derek, your business is almost 15 years old now. And I think I saw a stat the other day, like businesses that get to this point, like they're far fewer than you might imagine. Like it, it really yeah. is, okay. a you know, it's, it's a challenge to get to this point in a company's growth. What do you, like, what are some of the things that you've learned over the last 15 years that give you, that, that make you look to the next 15? I mean, like, what, what can you point to? Um, a couple of things. One, I think just how fortunate, how blessed I feel that, again, that who I am and my passion in life is also my work. Good. So there isn't the, my work is crunching numbers and who I am is something different. So um, in as much as I want to remain vibrant and remain um, relevant, my work is going to benefit um, from right. that as well. The other part is just, and I think this is just who I am as a person. Um, and also maybe you could argue just uh, my, my unique path to get to where I am is the idea of adaptability. Um, that I can track where I am and, 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 and sort of, I don't need to, there's not a linear pathway between A and B to me. There is the goal that I've set. Um, and then I, I expect that on that road, that there are going to be some surprises and I'm going to have to think about, um, the impact of those surprises uh, on my goal. And I'm fine with also modifying my goal. So being adaptable um, and being flexible, I think has been a key um, to being effective, um, really. The other part I think that's really important is, again, this comes from singing, is really being honest with what you're bringing to the table so, um, and what yeah. you're not. Um, what and 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 being as 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 objective as you can be in being diagnostic about yourself and your value proposition um and if it's relevant or not and if it's not relevant you need to find out what is relevant um so that so 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 that so that you are relevant the other thing i think has just been important to me is and I, i'm certainly not perfect at this but um Determining what are the optimal circumstances for me to to hit the home run. Yeah. Um, what do I need in terms of um, environment? What do I need in terms of sleep? What do I need in terms of diet? What do I need in terms of um, how much time I'm focusing on work versus how much time I'm <clears throat> engaging in self-care? That the the notion that my body is part of my instrument. And if I don't take care of that, then I'm not going to be able to perform um, is, has been, has been, has been really, um, really important as well. And then I think that board of directors keeping me humble um, and, and pushing me to, to not rest on my laurels. You know, I think about before I, when I was creating the TEDx talk, um, the friend that invited me to, to present, um, I was very busy. I was flying all around the country at that point. And I said, thank you. And I'm not quite sure if I really have time to write something, um, but I'll put something together. And so I took one of the workshops that I had and I sort of reimagined it and I shared it with him. He said, it's good. 
I said, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I said, no, he said, he said, it's, it's good. It, I mean, it's not your best, but I mean, it's okay. It's great. I mean, it'll be fine for, and I said, excuse me. Um, and he, he pushed and I, he said, you're much better than this, but if you're, if you're comfortable settling with this, that's fine. And I needed that push. <laughs> I needed that push. Wow. And that, push, that. Is, that push is why we have the TEDx talk, yeah. right? Right. Um, so, yeah, those are just some of the, I think, when I think about, it's not a secret, but certainly for, for my recipe for being in, in this space um, for the amount of time I have, um, I think those have been really important. And I would say, you know, Peter, you know, statistic, I'm wondering what that statistic is for my field. I mm. have to imagine it's it's far fewer years. Um, yeah. I can't think of many folks okay. who have been in right. diversity and inclusion for 15 years as a as a consultant. So, Derek, you know, as we close the pod, we like to end with this question, and I'm super curious to hear what your answer is. Like, if you had an opportunity to, to do it all over again and walk down either this path that you've taken or a different, you know, leadership journey path, which would you do? That's a great question. And I've thought about it many times. Um, and uh, each time I reflected and I've become more certain in my response, and I've heard this from many people, so it may find sound cliche, but I wouldn't change a thing. Um, because if I were to have a different course or a different path, I wouldn't be who I am today. And so if I think about some of the adversity, you know, I've, I've had, I've encountered early on, things are outside of my control. Um, though I've, there've been lessons from that. Um, when I think about, you know, sometimes I wish, you know, gosh, what if my undergraduate, instead of being languages were like psychology, right? Sure. And instead of my master's, instead of it being, you know, education, um, what if it were like, I don't know, organizational development and my doctorate instead of education, what if it were like, I don't know, something else, then I really think I would, you know, I think I would have been set up in a different way. But I was like, no, not okay. so much because the music is critical to <laughs> who I am. The languages are critical to who I am. That I was a teacher is critical to, to who I am to my approach to how I see the world, you know, that, that, you know, that I was born uh, in Chicago, you know, that I'm Christian. All of these things are, are part of, of who I am. When I've fallen on my face and had to sort of regroup and figure out what are the lessons that aren't here, all of that has informed um, who I am and the path, um, the path that, that I've taken. So um, if I had to change anything, I, I, I guess maybe make two of me because I, I have a sense that whenever, you know, God calls me up there to do diversity work in heaven, um, <laughs> that I want to leave here. I can see it already. I'm going to be the person who is on the deathbed, not thinking, gosh, I've done everything that I could have done or thinking, while I regret having done that, I think I'm going to be the person what I envision. I'm the person saying, you know, I'm really proud of what I've done. There are some mistakes I made. I've learned from those. I hope that, you know, I haven't harmed anyone along the path. And when I die, people are going to go to my computer and they're going to see a calendar of all these things I have planned, right? Like 
the Derek Gay concert. They're like, he's 98 and he was planning on singing a concert, right? Writing that 12th book. Like he was still going to do that. He had vacation plans to go to Bali. He was going to meet with, he was having lunch with a mentor the following day, right? That's what I want. That's how I imagine that there's yeah. going to be so much more right. um, to be done. I'm just part of that, part of part way on that, on that journey. Well, that, that really is a great way to end, Eric. But I have one final question. Where yes. can people where can people find out more about you? Or where should they yeah. follow you? Yeah, they can find out more about me at my website. So www.derekgay.com. Um, but they can also follow me on, on Instagram. So just Derek Gay, my name, D-E-R-R-I-C-K-G-A-Y, or Dr. Derek Gay. Um, and they can also follow my food adventures on mm-hmm. The Ball Foodie. And I share all of the amazing food that I get to eat uh, when I travel. Um, when I travel the world. So, yeah, you can follow me there. And um, I'm hoping to be much more active in sharing uh, the stories, just incredible stories that I am engaging with uh, with folks all around the world. Well, Dr. Derek Gay, thank you for sharing your story today. And I have to echo that, keep Brendan, you got to follow <laughs> his bald foodie. Instagram account, like it's Hot. legit. As soon as we're done, as soon as we're done, I don't follow you. As soon as we're done, I'm on it. Okay, good. Thanks, good. Derek. Derek, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Backstory. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite podcast player and leave us a review if you like what you hear. We appreciate you sharing your feedback with other listeners. Peter Barron and Brendan Schneider host the Leadership Backstory. Catch you on the next episode.